Hear now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Before we start, let's uh, pray one more time. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Glad you all made it. Uh, It's pretty icy and slippery out there, and um, it was a little dangerous uh, but I'm glad you made it okay. This is a famous passage that was read today, and I hope that uh, even though it is a familiar passage for some, it's uh, good to be reminded of, even if it's a familiar thing, it's good to be reminded at times. And how much more so the things of God, if they are truly good things. And so as I was uh, meditating on the passage, I am reminded uh, I was reminded of my grandma, who was a matriarch in my family, and um, she was a woman of intense prayer. And uh, when she passed, I would I remembered all the things. And even like a year after she passed, people um, in my family would still remember her with tears because she was such a wonderful example for us to follow. And I remember the conversations I would have with her, and I'm sure uh, this, this is the same for many of you. If you have a, a grandparent that has uh, left you uh, to meet the Lord, hopefully, and uh, if that's the case, then I think we could kind of relate uh, to what Isaiah is going through here. Um, it starts off by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. And so the question is, who is Uzziah? Who is Uzziah, and why does it matter? Uh, Uzziah reigned for 52 years. He started when he was 16, and he reigned for 52 years. He was one of the good kings of Israel. But if you think about 52 years of reign, then you would think, now, how can I really relate? That means for 52 years, you would have had 10 presidents. Uh, You would have had uh, Lyndon Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and now Trump. And so we have 52 years of presidents here, but we see that Uzziah would reign for 52 years. And imagining that, and imagining having a good reign, 
for 52 years. It was up and down maybe for uh, the U.S. even in these, the span of 52 years. But for 52 years you had good reign. What kind of king was Uzziah? And he was a godly king. Uh, and he was a strong king. It was uh, even in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six, verse ten. There were little tidbits of information about him, so you could kind of relate to him. And he goes, he loved the soil, so he loved like farming and stuff. But he was such a successful king in his com- campaign uh, that when he would go out, he would attack the bordering enemy lands and conquer them, and he would set up cities, and Israel would expand their fame would grow and this is the kind of king Uzziah was not only that he was innovative he was intelligent he set up he had technological advances in the kingdom he would set up crossbows and other weaponry on the city walls and his fame it would say would go all the way to the ends of the earth at least as far as Egypt as we're concerned so people all over the world as they knew it knew about who this king was and what he did for Israel. He was a good king. People would come all over, like the Ammonites would even come all over the world to pay King Uzziah tribute because he was such a famous, successful king. And did I mention he loved the soil? So I thought that was such an interesting thing. Imagine like reading about some um, expedition of a great king or a president or prime minister or some kind of leader of the world. And then you would see little tidbits about him. And uh, that's how I saw it. And just imagining this man who would basically be known throughout the world just spending time in his garden. And so I saw him as a, a man who was not only wise, um, in his rule, but um, successful in his campaign, but also someone that was down to earth, literally down to earth, but down to earth in the sense that he liked the things that you and I may have liked. And he was smart enough to be successful in the things that he did. However, however, unfortunately, his fame and strength uh, led him to become proud toward the end of his days. Uh, he had a prophet that he would follow. His name was Zechariah. And when Zechariah died, you saw that uh, Uzziah started to build up his pride. And what he did was he went into the temple of God, wanting to burn an incense on the altar. And he wanted to burn incense on the altar because um, he just wanted to. He just wanted to. And then if you read the Bible, um, Azariah, who was the high priest at the time, and 80, it says 80 valiant men would come out. So four score of valiant men would come out to stop him. And they would say, King Uzziah, you are a great king. You are good in what you've done. We really appreciate you, but you can't do this. We get it. You're anointed by God. You're supposed to lead the people, but there are some things that you cannot do. There are some things that are reserved for the sons of Aaron, and you are not that person. He got really mad, and he was about to go against these 81 people. And then what is recorded is as he was about to just, he was raging and is about to move forward, bam. Uh, leprosy got stuck on his forehead 
And then when people saw that, there was some growth on his forehead. They were like, you are now unclean. You can't even enter this temple. You have to get out. So they ushered him quickly out of the temple because he was unclean. And it's recorded that at the end of his days, he lived in disgrace outside, outside of the camp, outside of the city, outside of his palace. And he lived in a separate palace until he died. And so this great king, imagine, you are so proud of your country. And the leader of your country makes it even bigger. So you're even more proud for 52 years of good reign. Like all the nations around you respect your king, respect your leader, respect you. And then he dies this really disgraceful death. At the end of his days, pride got the better of Uzziah. He tried to light incense on the altar, and he got struck with leprosy on his forehead. And so who is Isaiah? We're talking about Uzziah. Who's Isaiah? A lot of ayahs here. But Isaiah was also unusual for a prophet. A lot of prophets were of humble origins. They were peasants or shepherds or farmers. But Isaiah was a statesman. He was of nobility. He was recognized by nobility. That means he consorted with princes, kings, and God would use him to speak to a lot of kings in Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. So for four kings, he would be prophet. And he would set um, Isaiah apart from other prophets as well. And so he wasn't just any prophet that you would have seen. He was a separate prophet. And so he would have consorted with Uzziah. He would have had fellowship and communion with Uzziah. And he would have seen the things that Uzziah did. And so when we see that this happened to Uzziah, you can imagine what is going through Isaiah's head. In the year that King Uzziah died, it's not just a simple sentence. And so... We're, going ta- we're taking this break from Matthew to go through the three, um, the three elements of our prayer times, like I said last week. And this week is about holiness. And so you might be thinking, yeah, I see holy, holy, holy here in verse 3, but why is he spending so much time on verse 1, part A, right? That kind of thing. But if we don't get this, we don't actually see why even the second part of verse 1 is important. And so the second part of verse 1, we see that he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So you, you would have been filled with grief, especially if you had a good king, especially if you had a good leader. And the good leader is now gone in disgrace. And people, what they're going to remember is the disgrace and so Isaiah will go to the temple, presumably, presumably looking for consolation in a time of national, yes, but also personal grief. But he got more than he bargained for. The king was dead. But when Isaiah entered the temple, he saw another king, the ultimate king, the one who sat forever on the throne of Judah. He saw the Lord. And there's a difference between the Lord and the Lord. It's shown in our Bibles with capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So there's a 
difference between capital L and then lowercase ORD and then all caps LORD. Capital L lowercase ORD is translated from the word Adonai. Adonai means the sovereign one or master or ruler. And capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that Lord of all caps is the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And so when you see the word Yahweh, they would translate it with, they would translate it with all caps. That was the Yahweh is the name of God that we saw revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And we see this take place in the Psalms a lot. So in Psalm 8, if you're familiar with Psalm 8, uh, the psalmist goes, O Lord, all caps, our Lord, capital L and lower caps for the rest, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that would have been read, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a kind of a beautiful statement now that you, we, we see this. In Psalm 110, famously used by Jesus, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus comes to this earth and clarifies exactly what that means. Here's the, here's the point, though. When Isaiah says, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and he was referring to God, this is what it would teach us. You can be angry at your leaders for their failures. There can be crisis in the nation. And its leaders can even die. But God here is showing Isaiah who the true Adonai is. Who his true master and king is. And that's what's being shown to Isaiah you can be angry at your leaders for all these things. But the more depressed and hopeless you become because of the leaders of your nation, the leaders of this world, you see what God is doing to Isaiah. God is showing Isaiah, I am the true king. I am the true master that you should be looking toward. And this is what Isaiah sees. And when he sees it, there should be immediately something that comes into your mind. It's Exodus chapter 33 since we went over that because we know as people who study the Bible that you cannot see God and live. We know this from Exodus. Moses wanted to see God too. He goes, show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And God tells Moses that you cannot see me because if you take a look at me, you're going to die. So this is, what, this is what God does. He takes Moses and he puts him in a cleft between two rocks. He passes by. So he only sees the passing by of God, the hind quarters of God. But even that, the refracted glory of God being given to Moses after he gets the refracted glory of God he goes down and the people can't even look at him like Moses you have to cover your face and you have to get away from me because that glory is too good too great too incredible too scary for me get away that's what they say to that's what they say to Moses we know that no one can see God and live and even a glimpse of the refracted glory is enough to make your face shine so brightly that people couldn't bear to come near Moses 
But here in Isaiah's vision, God was so high and so lifted up. What Isaiah notes, this is, this is, so this, this should this is just blow your minds. Even in verse 1 and 2, what Isaiah notes is the train or the tail or the hem of God's robe. That's, what, that's, that's the detail he writes about God. Do you know what the hem is? The hem is this little stitching here. This little stitching here at the end of someone's robe. That fills the temple. And that was so overwhelming to Isaiah. That's the detail that he remembered to write down. Because God himself was so overwhelming. How can I even write about that? And that's what's amazing to me. That the only thing that Isaiah can even bear to describe about God is the hem of his robe. And this is what he saw in a time when he was deeply distressed. When a time there was hopelessness in the nation. When there was a time where you didn't know who to trust anymore. What leader can we trust? Who can we follow? And God shows him, I am the Adonai. I am the true king. It's incredible, right? And so the next verse says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Who are the seraphim? I think we went over this a little bit. And uh, I, I went over this with this group when we did the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, right? And this, um, I remember saying, you know, necessarily, there is no reason for us to believe that angels have wings, um, because the Bible never says that. Uh, but we do know that cherubim have wings, and seraphim definitely here have wings. And people came up to me after that sermon uh, visibly disturbed. They're like, that, that, no, I, I, I want my angels to have wings, and I want my angels to have like a little halo over the heads. This is, you're blowing my world, you know? And um, there's a difference between why... God mentions seraphim, why God mentions angels, why God mentions cherubim. And if you continue to look, it seems like cherubim is always guarding something, like guarding the Ark of the Covenant, guarding Eden. And when Ezekiel talks about Satan, he was a cherubim who was a guardian as well of Adam and Eve. So we see that a lot of the things that uh, cherubim do is guarding uh, I don't know for sure if that's the only thing they did, but we, we see that that's one of the things that they did do in the Bible, according to the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not an exhaustive resource for us to know about angels, cherubim, and seraphim, nor should it be. But there is only one mention in the entire Bible about the seraphim, and boom, here we are, the seraphim. Who are the seraphim? Seraphim, um, we don't know exactly, but we do know from the word seraphim or seraph means either flaming ones or the serpents, right? Something that looks like serpents or flaming ones. They are the only time mentioned in the Bible. And if you think about the word seraph, which means engulfed in flame or a serpent, you can see that no matter what, in the presence of God, you are on fire. You're just combustible. That's how holy God is. And these are the flaming ones. Um, what stood out to Isaiah, however, were the wings. They had six wings or three pairs, right? 
And you might think, wow, that seems a bit excessive, right? But God is the perfect creator. He doesn't make things that are superfluous or unnecessary. Everything that God creates has a purpose. And we read this in the catechism today when he created all of humankind, male and female. They all have a purpose. And we realize in the number one question of the catechism, it's to give glory to God. But everything has a purpose. And with one pair, they would cover their face. They couldn't even look at God. They couldn't handle the fullness of the glory of God. You can't handle this. And they knew it. They covered their faces. They wouldn't even bear to show their face to God. But with another, they would cover their feet. And to me, that's very interesting. And if you're reading this, that would also intrigue you too. What does that mean to cover your feet? Well, there are two distinctions on feet. Feet is a humble position. Uh, No matter what culture you go to, a foot is a humble place to be at. And even in our culture, if we say someone's a foot soldier, that means it's a person who carries out important work, yes, but they don't have a role of authority or in an organization or field or some group, right? And that's what a foot soldier means. Another distinction on foot is we take off shoes because the ground is holy. When Moses went and saw the burning bush, God would say, the ground is holy, therefore take off your shoes, You wear shoes when you walk on dirty ground. Why? So not to damage or stain your feet. But to take off your shoes must mean now that the ground that you're walking on is holier than the shoes that you have been walking on the dirt with. You're going to stain this special ground. So that's why you take off your shoes. If you're from any kind of Asian culture, you take off your shoes when you go home. Why is that? Is it because you're just special and it's just something that you do? Or is it because, in some senses, we find the home to be a holy place or a separate place, a place that's different from the outside? So we make that distinction by taking off our shoes. But here, it's a little different. The angels could not even bear or expose their feet And they had to cover them with a set of wings. And they were constantly flying. So with the other two, they were constantly flying, which must meant that the place where they were was too holy for even their feet to touch, to stand still before the holiness of God. I've also noticed that in this verse, in verse 2, it says, And above him stood the seraphim. Maybe it's too cultural of a reading, you might think. But I know of zero cultures that allow someone's feet that's lesser to be above someone's head who is greater. Meaning, if I am lower than you, then my feet are not above you. Any kind of symbolism, any kind of action culturally. Imagine you went to some culture and like someone really of low position would go to the king and be like, hello, king, and they would pat them with their foot. That's like that. You don't see that because it just doesn't happen that way. But we'll come back to this, okay? In verse 3, it says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The late R.C. Sproul would famously teach that the Bible doesn't say God is love, 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 or justice, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. But the Bible does say God is holy, holy, Holy. That means we got to turn our lights on. We got to pay attention because this is incredible. One time is good enough. One time is good enough if it's in the Bible and it's just said one time. It's good enough because it's the word of God. The Lord your God is merciful and gracious. If God tells us that, then we could take it as it is. But the Hebrew language had particular ways of making emphatic statements, of putting emphasis on a particular statement. And one very well-known way that we went over when we went through in Genesis was repeat, repeat. And it's repeated twice, right? Samuel, Samuel meant God was saying Samuel emphatically. We went over Joseph. And remember when he was being tempted by Potiphar's wife? It was Potiphar's wife would tempt Joseph day-day. That's the Hebrew day-day, which meant day after day after day after day. It means a lot of days. And Potiphar's wife was tempting Joseph because he was such a good-looking man. Pause. But yeah, it was such a good-looking man. There's only a few times in the Bible where men are mentioned as good-looking, so it makes me pause. It's like, oh, okay, David was mentioned as really good-looking. A lot of good-looking women in the Bible, but men, there's only about six or seven, so it makes you pause, like David, Saul, you know, Joseph was one of them, that kind of thing. But this is Potiphar's wife, Day-Day, would tempt him. In Genesis 14, it talks about a lot of marshy pits or full of tar pits, and they... It's translated from pit pit, pits pits. That's what it's translated from. That means there were a lot of pits there, a lot. And where Jesus, when he would teach, verily, verily, if you're familiar with the King James, or truly, truly, which meant amen, amen, which was from what we understand as amen, amen. At the end of the teaching, the elders would normally respond, ah, if there was a guest preacher, like here, and this person was preaching, the elder would come out and would say amen to it. And that means we verify the, what this teaching was. And then you as a congregation can take that. That's the job of the elder. But Jesus would start off his statement by saying amen, amen. Which meant amen to himself before he even spoke. So the elders must have taken like, what is going on, right? But Jesus emphatically states amen before he even starts speaking because he is not just some guest preacher. He's God. But here in this verse, it's not just once and it's not just twice, but it's three times. Never has there been another character of God mentioned three times. And guess what? It's God is holy, holy, holy. It's meant to be read that way, by the way. Once is good enough for an attribute of God. 
Yeah, God is merciful. That's amazing. We are covered in his mercy. God is gracious. Yes, because of his grace, we can live. But when the Bible says God is holy, that means it's raised to a power of three that the Hebrew Bible has never used before as if to say his divine holiness is so far beyond what the human mind can grasp that it's not just a superlative, it's a super superlative and it's invented to express his transcendent holiness is the ultimate truth about who God is. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be other. It means to be other. It means to be set apart from the things of this world. And God calls his people to be holy, which we'll talk about next week in our second part of holiness. But in Leviticus 19, it says, you shall be holy as I am holy. And now just even thinking about that, understanding this passage, you might be thinking that's, that's insane. And if you're here for Ash Wednesday, the generosity that a Samaritan is supposed to show, that's what we are called to do. The over-generousness of our giving, that's what we are called to do. Otherwise, you're not fulfilling God's law. That should also make you take a step back. People believe, and they still believe today, being holy then is about keeping rituals and ceremonial laws. That's how you're holy. Come out to church on Sunday, listen to or put up with Pastor Eugene's sermon, and then I'm holy. That's probably also what Isaiah thought too. And that's what probably what Isaiah did. But God, when he shows up, is so utterly holy so utterly holy that to be in his presence, even the heavenly beings would cry out, wow, that's holy. And look, his holiness fills the whole earth. And notice what happens when this definition is applied to God himself. What can you separate from God to make him holy? The very godness of God means that he is separate and he is not any kind of being other than he is God. He is infinitely and qualitatively more different than the creatures that he's created. There is an infinite chasm between the creature and the creator. And so God is one of a kind. In Latin, we call that sui generis, which means he's in a class by himself. In that sense, he is utterly other. He is so holy. But then, in a sense, in our understanding, then you, you know, Hasidim, you're making a big deal, but all you basically said that he's God. It's like, yeah, but he's God. It's like, yeah. So even our understanding of holiness falls short. And this is what is being conveyed by the angels' exclamation. And the fountains of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The foundations of the thresholds or the entrance or the doorposts shook. To be shaken means that it's not being held together, right? It's coming apart. Even when we say the words, I'm shook, means my core is shaken. I'm coming apart. It's reminiscent of Uzziah's leprosy mishap. This earthquake that's happening in Isaiah must have been also been earthquake that's happening in his life. But there was literally an earthquake. It was a sign of sin 
and unworthiness because it could not stand God's holiness. The foundations of the temple were even shaken because even the inanimate objects couldn't stand still in the utterly holy, in the presence of the utterly holy God. And because he was standing there, it hits him hard. And so when we see this passage, I know that we're breaking it apart. A lot of times when we come here, I I talk to you about this is exegesis, and we're here, we're getting used to exegesis, which I'm so proud of, by the way. I, I haven't mentioned this before, but if you were with us maybe like seven years ago, and I preached, and I remember preaching as a, uh, as a young pastor in training. And I think I preached like 25 or 30 minutes and some people were like, Pastor Eugene, you're preaching so long. Ha <laughs> ha Anyway, here we are, right? Uh, a few years later and we're just absorbing every verse. And how can you honestly go through something so magnificent as the word of God in 2025? I don't understand. Maybe some people are better at me than this, so I give them kudos. But honestly, I love going into the word with you all, and I think it's an incredible privilege that we are getting used to this. When I gave this sermon before, uh, it was because I was invited to another church, and they said, uh, could you please preach for us? We really need some help uh, for this week. So I said, oh, I'd love to be of some help because I love that church. They're our brothers. They're our neighbors. And so I said, what can I preach about? They're like, what's in your heart? And this was in my heart at the time. And then after I preached it, uh, some of you have come up to me. It's like, that's great. They get to hear something that's in your heart and we don't. It's like, wait, Matthew's also in my heart. But I thought Lent was a perfect time for us to take a break and just preach on the things that we are praying for. And holiness especially has been in my heart. Uh, Which one of us, the first thing immediately that we think of when we think of God is God is holy. But this is what's being shown in the Bible. And so when we see what Isaiah saw, we're taking it a verse at a time. But you must, you must realize that this all happened instantaneously. It's like, boom, it happened like that, the vision in an instant. And we're taking it a verse at a time. And so we saw the temple quake and shake its core, shaken. And there Isaiah was standing at the entrance to the temple and it hits him hard. And he, it's like, it's like this visceral reaction, something that you just can't keep. If someone just pricks you with the needle, you're like, ow. So immediately you see this kind of reaction from Isaiah. He goes, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, woe is used in contrast and opposition of the word blessed. Jesus gives his blessed, but he also gives his woes on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. Woe means you are cursed. It's a judgment that's pronounced. And just as Jesus pronounced judgment on the Pharisees and scribes, when he goes, woe to you, But Isaiah, after seeing and witnessing an utterly holy God, his response is, woe is me, as if to pronounce judgment on himself. And immediately follows with, I am lost, or I am undone, I am ruined, I am shook, I am becoming 
undone, and I'm coming apart at the seams. You know, if there was a man that had, had integrity, that was Isaiah. His contemporaries considered him to be a most righteous man of the nation. He was looked up to. He had all the right, he thought, himself to say, I have good esteem because I have good standing. I can consort with kings and still keep my ground. I can do these things that other people can't because... You know, you can get a um, anti-Isaiah campaign, political campaign against me, but you won't find any dirt because I'm pretty clean. But in a single moment, a single glimpse of God, and it all immediately unravels. And he goes, I am, un- I am an unclean man with unclean lips. What are unclean lips? Lips are an expression of your life. What you have inside, you express it through your lips. So if your expression is utterly horrid, then what is inside is being expressed. And he is saying, everything about me is horrid. I realize this when my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, If lips express, then eyes take in. And so when something so utterly holy and pure comes in, even for an instant, it does not mix well if it's not equally holy. It's like milk and orange juice. It doesn't go together. And then, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your your sin atoned for. The holy God is also a God of grace. He saw his servant wallowing on his belly and he took immediate steps to cleanse this servant of his. He commands one of the seraphim, and you can imagine when God commands one of the seraphim, this seraphim was pretty quick because not only did he have two wings, he had six. And this angelic creature, he moves and he flies across, grabs a tongue, goes to the altar, takes glowing, burning coal, too hot, This coal was too hot for even the angel to touch, so he takes tongs to use it. And then the seraphim, this seraph, would press upon Isaiah's lips. And the lips are one of the most sensitive parts of the skin. It's very thin. And he would press it upon his lips, and then he would be clean. A lot of people and commentators would imagine the pain that this would have brought Isaiah. However, it doesn't mention the pain here. Isaiah was still numbed by the holiness of God. If anything was severe, it was God's mercy. If anything was awe-inspiring, it was God's grace. If anything was just utterly overwhelming, it was His holiness. It went on beyond, beyond just cheap words saying, God, I'm sorry for being bad. I'm not like you, even though you created me to be like you. I complain. I gripe. 
I'm always unsatisfied. But my satisfaction was supposed to be in you. You are my true Adonai. It wasn't just lips. There was literally something that took place that we are to take notice of. This fire, this coal was from a fire, from the altar, where holiness was accepted, satisfied. That means this fire was active. What does fire at the altar means? That means there was a sacrifice. You don't just kindle a fire for no reason. That's why the fire has meaning. There was a holy sacrifice. So we're going to go back to the feet part. I told you we'll, we'll pause it for now. Whenever, ever in your imagination would feet ever be above someone that's greater than you. Never, never, unless, unless there is a dissension. And this is doctrinally, we understand this to be the condescension of God. There was a dissension of God. God was coming down. That's why the hem of his robe filled the temple in the altar. There was a sacrifice, not just any old sacrifice, but a holy sacrifice. So holy that the seraphim couldn't even touch it with his bare hands. He needed tongs to grab the coal. This incredibly holy God was descending to pay the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be whole, so that our guilt could be taken away and our sin atoned for. That's the picture that Isaiah sees and experiences in that instant. That's the holy God that we serve. It's not just that he is holy, but his holiness is now being filled throughout the earth including and especially his servants. God appears, creation trembles, but God forgives. And here we see that God heals. God heals. Why is there such an unsettling in the soul? Isn't it because we don't have God as Adonai. And when we recognize that God is Adonai, it doesn't just get better. It gets worse. It gets worse because we are not like him. But God doesn't just leave us as we are. There is a dissension. That's an incredible kind of love. And as holy as he is, he descends to us so that we can also be holy. Don't you see, this was a picture that God was showing Isaiah for his people, his plan that he had, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every single part here just screams out Jesus Christ and what Jesus did for us. Because we didn't deserve it, but he descended paid the ultimate sacrifice. And because of what he did for us, that sacrifice, that holy sacrifice, when it's imputed to us, we become holy. You'll see next week, but you'll see in the very next verse, Isaiah immediately can now say, when God muses, whom shall I send? He goes, here am I. I can go. That's the first thing that he says. Because finally, we see that we can be a part of what God has planned for us. 
is not just to wallow in your sin and in your shame and suffer. But God picks his people up. He makes them holy. He heals them. And now we can play a part in what we are created for. Let me remind you of what the angel says to Isaiah. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That is the hope that we have when we see the holy, holy, holy God that we are not left in our state of unholiness, but rather God touches our lips, takes away our guilt, and our sin is atoned for, and we can be with him in eternity. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, the hope of the message, the hope of the gospel, the message of the Bible is exactly this. It's throughout the word that we know that God is holy. We don't lessen his holiness. We don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, God said this, but we don't have to really follow. In fact, God says this, we have no idea how high this bar is. It's really high. Just remember the Good Samaritan. That bar is incredibly high. But God doesn't leave us where we are. He picks us up. And he cleanses us. And he heals us. And we will see he empowers us. And but first, what we have to recognize is we also need to see that we are of unclean lips, unclean eyes. We cannot take his holiness as we are. We are not to look down on who God is or lessen his holiness. Rather, we are to look at the word and see that God is utterly holy and praise him for his holiness. He is holy. He is magnificent. He is glorious. That's the God that we worship. And even now, in this very moment, if you cry out to God, remove my guilt. I need you. He is a God of mercy and grace. And you'll see with a quickness, he'll send his seraph. I hope that we see this truth and this truth will be reflected in the way we live our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible message of grace, this good news that we have in Jesus Christ, that even before he was born here on this earth, you knew and you were showing your people that you had a plan for them and for us and that we are to believe it with faith and take it in. And Lord, you transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So transform your people now so that we can become more like you as we worship, gaze, and are enamored and in awe of your holiness. Let's take this time to pray. And as we reflect on the word, if there is some area in your life, maybe there are many areas, or if you're like Isaiah, then it's all areas that's unholy then lift it up unto the Lord in faith, knowing that he and his desire is to cleanse you. So let's pray now.